0: Hello, and welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name's Toby, and today I'm joined by Professor Barbara Preinsack. Professor Preinsack is a political scientist based at the University of Vienna, where her research focuses on bioethics and medicine, two topics on which she advises the Austrian government as part of its National Bioethics Council. She's also chair of the European Group on Ethics and New Technologies, which advises the European Commission on a wide range of ethical issues, including most recently on how to prepare for and respond to future crises. So, Barbara, welcome to the podcast.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Toby. I'm happy to be here.
0: I have to say, I find your advice on the ethics of policymaking in a crisis uh, extremely interesting and quite provocative in some ways. So I definitely want to talk about that. But before we get stuck into it, I also wanted to get your take on a couple of more conceptual questions about this whole idea of ethics advice in general. So, so here's the first question. I feel like we have a clear enough idea about why science advice is a thing, right? Policymakers need science advice because scientists have something that policymakers lack, some knowledge or whatever. Um, what's your take on why policymakers need ethics advice?
1: So, first of all, when a British person says, interesting, it's never a good thing, (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious to hear what you found provocative about the European Group on Ethics Statement. Um, What is ethics advice and why do policymakers need it? I'm not sure that policymakers need it, in the sense that it is something that is distinct from other types of um, advice that people offer. And that's policymakers sometimes take or don't take. I think in the last couple of decades, there was a progressive institutionalization of ethics in the sense that something that used to be folded into something that doctors did and policymakers did is more and more taken out and professionalized, at least ideally. So we also need to consider that a lot of the institutionalized ethics comes from medicine. Um So the bioethicist Anzionas once said, the doctor used to be alone with the patient and with God. Later on, societies didn't trust that conscience, that ethical decision-making of doctors anymore and um, institutionalized that and gave it into the hands of experts. In many ways, that was a good thing. In some ways, it wasn't. The institutionalization of ethics advice in other domains comes from a similar place, The idea is that ethical aspects, ethical assessments have become so complex because medicine has become complex, policymaking has become complex, building societies in the broader sense of the word has become complex. So we now need specialized bodies and not everyone who sits on an ethics committee is an ethicist. So I'm not an ethicist, for example. But we need specialized bodies who do that as their main task and who then, I would not say advice policymakers although we sometimes use ethics advice as shorthand for something broader but it's really about societal deliberation about dialogue about maybe helping someone else to think in a structured way through some issues so I see that as as ethics advice in a good sense rather than the finger wagging you know can't do this must do that
0: So that's interesting because it's a a disanalogy then from the the kind of classical way that science advice is imagined or idealized. You know, the policymaker asks for some knowledge and the scientist hands over that knowledge so the policymaker can use it or not. I mean, they can decide how to interpret it and whether to use it and in what ways and so on. But still, like, as an input, they have to kind of take it at face value. Here's what the evidence says. Whereas what you're describing as the role of ethics advisors, to use that, Shorthand, or you could say more specifically, the role of something like the European Group on Ethics that you chair is is not an analogous role when it comes to ethics. You're not presenting, as it were, ethical evidence for the policymaker to chew on. It sounds like you don't claim to have answers based on ethics in the same way as the scientists.
1: Well, have. first of all, I would <laughs> I would uh, not agree with your quite naive description of of science advice. Uh, okay, good. <laughs> so I I don't think that. This is how, I mean, in most cases, it doesn't work like that, right? So the policy cycle where you have um, the agenda setting and then you have the formulation of the policy problem and then the evidence comes in. I mean, this is an ideal type. I think it's a a useful heuristic, but you know this as, as well as I do, that this is not how it normally works. Because whatever input from scientists is needed is very contingent in particular ways of framing the policy problem, sort of the way that we frame the problem shapes what type of evidence we even look at, what types of advice we need. And I think in that sense, it is not so dissimilar. So science advice is not so dissimilar from ethics advice in the sense that ideally, science advice engages into a dialogue with policymaking, or gets involved in policymaking and helps to improve it. and And ethics advice does the same thing. The the evidence that both use are different types of evidence. Um, But I I even think that the term evidence might be a bit misleading. I think maybe a better word is information. Because evidence has this connotation of being the ultimate answer to a question. It quenches the thirst for uh, whatever answer one might need to a question. Whereas information maybe pays tribute more to the fact that science is developing. So information coming out of science is changing. And with ethics, it's a similar thing. But my short answer to your question would be, is ethics advice about giving right or wrong answers? Or saying that something is right or wrong? No, it's not about that. You're absolutely right. It's it's really as science advice is trying to do to help improve the process of policymaking. Um, slotting in wherever it can make itself heard and wherever it, it's needed, and always trying to not being instrumentalized.
0: Okay, great. Then this might answer or go some way to answering another complaint that you sometimes hear also about scientific advice. And I wonder if adding in ethics advice in a way makes the complaint more uh, more severe. So, I mean, there's a challenge that's sometimes raised against the role of scientists in the political process. The story goes that if scientists come to a consensus about something, let's say um, the measures that we need to fight climate change, then the, the scientists provide the facts. And what we need in our politicians is someone who's competent at converting those facts into policy actions in the best way. So in other words, we really just need good technocrats. And I th- so I think a sensible response to that is to say, well, no, like science doesn't tell you what to do. It only tells you some things about the way the world is or the way we think it is. And so the role of the policymaker, the, the politician, if you like, is still to make the call on what we want to do, given that information. And that's why there's no tension then between democracy and scientific evidence, because we we democratically elect people not to choose the facts, but to apply the kinds of values to those facts that we as voters want them to apply. So, so so far so good. But then you can hear the problem coming, right? Because then along comes the ethics advisor. Uh, And you said early on, we've institutionalized what used to happen in the head of the doctor, or in this case, the policymaker. So you've taken it out of the head of the elected person and put it into uh, an expert body. And so the more we institutionalize these things, the more we use expertise and argument in place of, you know, personal judgment, the less point then we can see in voting for one politician rather than another, because really, what are we deciding when we vote, if not what values we want to apply in policymaking? Does that make any sense?
1: Um, it, It makes a lot of sense. But I think one could also say there is not one lump of things that need to be deliberated and decided one could also argue that the range of issues we have to make policy on has broadened and the issues themselves have become more complex so that there's still enough for democracy to do i mean politics is really about if only tacitly about deciding between different interests and values for example thinking of the pandemic there are few people who absolutely, absolutely wouldn't wear masks, right? There are some, but the majority doesn't love masks. But when they are convinced that the uh, that masks are effective to protect people from infection, uh, when the infection numbers are above a particular threshold, then they're willing to wear them. So here, policy making needs scientific evidence, scientific information on how the virus spreads, what the thresholds are, how effective different types of mouth and nose coverings are, and so on and so on. So in this case, it is a relatively quote-unquote simple case in the sense that here information can actually suggest to policymakers how to act. So we can probably find the sweet spot where most people will say, okay, I'm going to wear a mask. This is okay, and a mask mandate would even be okay. In other cases, not. So this is a situation that uh, many people are in, or societies are in, in year three of the COVID pandemic, for example, that some people say, I can't take it anymore, I've suffered so much, I've homeschooled my children, I just can't take it anymore, I take the risk that I get sick, that I get reinfected. And others say, for me, the stakes are incredibly high because I'm a cancer patient, I cannot take the risk of getting infected. So this is a much more difficult situation for a policymaker, because information doesn't solve it. Um, The information, I mean, we know what we need to do in order to really minimize the risk of infection in public places, but that is something that a lot of people are not willing to adhere to. We get the problem of compliance and so on and so on. So this is something where we are right at the core of value decisions. And here we need to think about what kind of society do we want to be um, do we want to give special support to the most vulnerable? Um, also, you know, what is vulnerability? We should not only think about medically vulnerable people, but also socially, psychologically vulnerable people. Uh, what can states do to support people um, who need support and not only ask things and so on and so on? So I think what this example shows is that in almost every instance of policy making, there's plenty of room for information from science. Ethics advice in the sense that ethics in this in this tricky policy making situation cannot solve the problem. It can't say, okay, you really need to go this far with your measures so that 13% of the population are protected and the rest is not. It can't really do that, but it can provide, um, it can help a structured assessment of what the, the relevant ethical concerns are, what the values are that are uh inattention here and so and 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 how those things could be solved to respect the autonomy and dignity and other interests of as many people as possible and particularly the most vulnerable but it it really shows how fluid those differences are between what you call democratic deliberation scientific advice from outsiders namely the scientists and ethics advice from outsiders namely institutionalized ethics advisors.
0: all right thanks for that. That answer is very helpful, not only because it's quite sophisticated, but also because it's good to introduce a concrete example. Um, And we have another concrete example of where these three things come together. So societal deliberation, science advice, and ethics advice, um, which is in the statement that you are handing over to the European Commission on crisis management and, and preparedness for crises. Um, oh, yeah. And I wanted to say, to come back to your joke, I mean, <laughs> maybe it was a joke at the start. Um, I, I, when I said I find the advice you're giving interesting, I meant that quite sincerely. It was not my <laughs> polite British way of insulting you. Um, so the, the title of your statement is Values in Times of Crisis. Perhaps we can first get clear on what kinds of crisis we're talking about.
1: All crises. <laughs> so, um... The statement emerges from the European Commission tasking the EGE alongside the Group of Chief Scientific Advisors and also SAPIA with providing um, evidence and opinions and statements respectively on strategic crisis management. And the publications on the 22nd of November were what we call the triptych. So SAPIA and the Group of Chief Scientific Advisors and the EGE published their statements opinions and evidence, respectively. So, um, the remit are really all crises. And the starting point of the scoping paper that sort of gave rise to our publications um, was the assumption that crises have become more frequent or even ubiquitous. And a lot of people talk now about the notion of polycrises Um, also of uh, Arian Boyne's notion of transboundary crisis. So there's the sentiment that we are moving from one crisis to another. We don't get out of it anymore. And also that the EU, we're advising the the, the European Commission, so the EU is our uh, reference point. The EU wasn't set up as a crisis management body. So now it's managing all of those crises. So I personally disagree with the assumption. (laughs) I think uh, the EU is definitely a crisis management body. I mean, it came... It was created in the aftermath of a war to make it impossible, ideally, that wars would occur again uh, in Europe. So, I think the very uh, process of calling something a crisis or not already says a lot about a society. Um, also, our idea that we are now experiencing more crises than um, societies experienced in the past is also an interesting statement that I think needs. Some evidence <laughs> to be backed up. So calling something a crisis, what are we doing when we call something a crisis? I think we're doing, and this by the way is, is not in the statement, this is, this is me speaking, I think when we call something a crisis we're saying this is something that goes beyond our normal abilities to deal with something. So to use an analogy again, if I drop a can of uh, tomato juice in my flat then it's a problem. Because I might have to leave the house or I have to clean it up and it's annoying. And it might even have stained my carpet or whatever. But it's not a crisis. A crisis is when when I set my kitchen on fire. Because I can no longer deal with this this problem within the realm of my household. I need the firefighters. I need support from outside. So I think by calling something a crisis rather than a problem, we are saying that we are not able to deal with this with our established institutions, processes, and so on. And that is a very profound insight, actually. So that puts everything in a different light. If we now say we're facing more crises nowadays than we used to, I think what we're really saying as societies in Europe, we're saying these crises really challenge some of the very foundations of the way we, we live, work, we run our economies, um, and so on, and so on. Now to answer your question briefly after this kind of roundabout way of answering um, we're talking about the nested crises that we are facing that include climate change that include uh, military aggression that include health crises which unfortunately are going to actually happen more often now that we have um, limited the natural habitat of species and so on and so on and zoonoses so are becoming more common so we're talking about the nested crisis that, that are really inseparable from one another. Mm-hmm. And we're saying something also about it's a kind of tacit acknowledgement that the way that our societies are run no longer work, really.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I hadn't thought of it that way. So by defining a, a crisis as something which our ordinary institutions and our ordinary ways of organizing things are not enough to handle... You, you kind of make it somewhat relative. You're saying that what counts as a crisis for us is defined by what we are no longer able to handle with what we have. And so when we say now we live a time of constant crisis or there are more and more crises and crises overlap and so on, we're, we're essentially admitting our current setup isn't fit for our current situation.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. then I
0: I guess that also brings... Maybe a ray of sunshine to this otherwise extremely gloomy observation, we live in an age of constant crisis, that maybe that says more about us than the world. And if we can improve or redesign our institutions, what we have, maybe what counts as a crisis for us today might just be no more important than dropping a can of tomato juice tomorrow.
1: Yes, there's not an objective thing that is a crisis. So. Uh, the the very frequent comparison is to um, traffic accidents, right? So we accept some number of deaths every year because it's a tragedy. Each and every death is a tragedy, don't get me wrong. But as a society, we're not talking about the traffic crisis because people die on the road. Um, But we call it a crisis when um, some people tragically become the victims of a terrorist attack. And rightly so, because terrorist attack is always a kind of failure of the state and of society to provide security. But there's no such thing as an objective crisis. And when we're now thinking of creating institutions that are more capable to deal with crisis and societies that are more resilient, a little bit also hinges on deciding what level of suffering, what level of turmoil and chaos, do we accept?
0: Mm. Well, well, so much for the ray of optimism. Okay, so given this context of ongoing crises, the title of your statement is Values in Times of Crisis. Does this suggest that there is something different about how values operate or how they're applied maybe during a crisis as opposed to non-crisis context in peacetime, as it were?
1: That's a very good question. In the Yes, in the sense that The time frames are smaller. And so policymaking in times of a crisis is, and this is of course also what our colleagues in Sabea and in the the group of chief scientific advisors say, is particularly challenging because decisions have to be made under great time pressure and with very high levels of uncertainty. Different types of uncertainty, some things that aren't known because nobody collected data on it. Sometimes some things can't be known. If we don't know how the virus spreads, then we just can't know that yet. Uh, We can't know when the vaccine will be developed and so on and so on to stick with the um, example of the pandemic. So decisions have to be made very rapidly. The stakes are very high. Lives are at stake, literally. Policymakers are always worried that society descends into chaos, of course. And, and there, some of the um, things that ethics advisors normally like to do and, and advise cannot be done. You know, we cannot have a public consultation whether we should have a lockdown in a situation of an acute health crisis. What can help in such a situation is to, to have values in mind, the different types of framing the policy problem and also different types of solution support. So to put it differently, um, if I say, how do I protect the health of people in this situation? If I mean health in a very narrow biomedical sense, then I will throw biomedical and public health op- um, solutions on us. If I define health in a broader, also social psychological sense, then, then I will be more attentive to... Um, institutions and, and practices of support, psychological support, social support, economic support, and so on. So, in these different ways of formulating the policy problem and then formulating and choosing uh, policy instruments from the policy instrument toolbox, just making, making explicit and thinking of what values do those different options really um, support what values articulated in these options can be helpful because it can help to also assess how solid my own decisions are. So for example, if I choose a way of framing a problem and a policy solution that might be really strong on individual freedom, I could also say, okay, but individual freedom doesn't work in practice without having some other societal good such as some level of safety for people. So an example that we give in a statement is that if people don't dare to to leave their houses because they're afraid of being killed in the street or because they're afraid of being infected in a public place during a pandemic, they have their individual rights on paper, but they can't really exercise them. So thinking of what values do my policy solutions encapsulate can help create better policy solutions, because I, I, I might realize that oh, I'm really weak on individual autonomy here, or I'm really weak on solidarity here, maybe that's something that I should consider as well. Because if I don't consider it as a policymaker, citizens will. Mm -hmm. This is something that that I know from the empirical work that I'm involved with as as an academic. Some of the so-called non-compliance of people in Europe with um, pandemic measures was because people didn't understand Health to be narrowly biomedical, but they had a much broader understanding of so- social, psychological understanding of health. And the assumption by governments that health was really this narrow biological thing, people pushed back against that. They said, well, look, I can't take it anymore psychologically. That's also my health. And I'm socially isolated. That's also my health. So these types of framings and to assess our own framings and what values are in there If policymakers think that's a futile exercise, okay, be my guest, but somebody else will tease those values out and then you will run into problems later on. So this is why thinking about values, making values explicit, either for a broader audience, if if there's time and if there's a place for that, only for myself as a policymaker, if I'm a policymaker, that actually helps to create better solutions, to create better policies that are also more robust further downstream
0: and am i right in thinking because of what you said at the start about time pressure in a crisis the the point of a statement like this is partly to help with some of this work in advance so that when all hell breaks loose the policymaker has already given some thought to different framings and the different values uh, that they imply
1: um, that's a, again a very good question no i wouldn't even say that i think we don't know how the policy problems of the we will know we know that there will be another health crisis unfortunately but we don't know how the policy problem will present itself because it will depend on where, how, it it, it emerges in what form. So I don't, I don't think we should do that proactively. When policymakers need to make decisions in a crisis, then just thinking about the scientific basis upon which questions are formulated and, and solutions are found is, of course, I mean, I should just say this, it's so obvious to me, but I should also say this, That's step number one. But also thinking, if I then formulate a policy solution, what values am I fostering and supporting here? And what values do I not support here? And one thing that we, the European Group on Ethics, thought is particularly important is to draw attention in the context of strategic crisis management to the value of solidarity, not because it's the only important value or the most important value, But because we believe it has, it has often been misused in our recent past. So it's misused when, when autocratic, racist, nationalist leaders call for solidarity among particular members of a nation or even of a quote unquote a particular race against everyone else. Even policymakers and politicians who during the pandemic said we have to look after our own first. You know, this infamous example of the uh, the airplane oxygen mask, you know, you have to put your, put the mask on yourself first because of. So this is, of course, a misuse of solidarity that creates some kind of exclusive solidarity. It's a kind of club of people who have the right passport or the right religion or the right whatever. Also during the pandemic, a lot of people were quite worried and angry about solidarity being thrown at them, you know, to, not leave their houses, to wear masks, to do this and this, to homeschool their children, and so on and so on. When they felt that governments weren't being solidaristic, they weren't providing support for people appropriately, they weren't supporting them, they were not supporting each other as in creating vaccine equity um, globally. So it was a very much misused notion. But we think that solidarity is actually very helpful, potentially, in strategic crisis management, because, and I could now go on for a long time, I won't, I will just highlight one thing. One of the strengths of solidarity is that it really foregrounds what people have in common, despite all their similarities, not neglecting the differences, but emphasizing what people have in common, despite the differences. And thus, it doesn't lend itself to pitching the interests of one group against the other. It doesn't lend itself to saying, oh, this is not a risk group, the old people and the sick people and everyone else has to sacrifice ourselves for them. This was a very bad, it was a communication disaster at the beginning of the pandemic. It, it really foregrounds what people have in common. And it also emphasizes that there's no principal dichotomy between individual freedoms and collective goods such as public health. They need each other. You can't have public health without respecting individual privacy, but you can't have individual rights without making sure that public spaces are safe. So it gets us out of this unproductive dichotomy between, you know, me versus we. Sometimes those two levels are at attention, but more often than not, they aren't at attention. They're complementary.
0: That's great. I mean, there's a few things that come to mind in response to that, but let me see if I can put my finger on one coherently. So... I understand what you say about the misuse of solidarity, you know, that solidarity is a flag you can wave, but sometimes what you mean when you wave it is not actually very solidaristic, if that's a word, when you look closely. But then one response a government might give to that advice is to say, okay, well, fair enough that in that case, solidarity is not our top priority because we think that in this crisis situation, there are some other values that supersede that. So for instance, securing our national borders or you know, uh, buying as many vaccines as possible for our own population. You know, it's not obvious to everyone that solidarity, as properly understood, ought to trump other values. I mean, we're not going to resolve that here for sure. But my question is, is more something like, in the work you do as an ethics advisor to elucidate the true meaning of solidarity and point out when it's being misused, is that all you can do? When someone says, okay, if that's what solidarity means, then so much the worse for solidarity. We prefer this other set of values. Have you then hit the limit of what ethics advice can offer? Or do you have something else to say?
1: So first of all, I would say that solidarity doesn't become irrelevant when a country secures its borders for good reasons. Um, Because solidarity would then still, for everyone who's inside those borders, and I don't mean only citizens who hold a passport, but everyone inside... And also, solidarity is, of course, not always the value that, that solves all problems. But what it does, and also in your example, what it does, at the very least, it makes us critically scrutinize our processes of othering, if I can put it in this horrible scholarly way. <laughs> um, so where do we draw the boundary between us and others? You know, wh- Who do we exclude? Who do we include? And do we have good reasons for that? instrumentally good reasons for whatever we want to achieve. Um, but also um, are they just? Um, are they are they acceptable from a humanitarian point of view? Um, will we or somebody else hate us looking back for what we did? For policymakers that's not not an unimportant question, as you know. So at the very in the very least, even if it doesn't tell us what to do, always solidarity, in the very least it makes us critically think about processes and policies of and categories of exclusion and inclusion.
0: Great. Um, in your statement, you talk a little bit about European values. Do you think there are values that are specifically European or what's going on there?
1: Um, so we had it a debate about that. Um, and I'm grateful for this question because it um, enables me to clarify that we don't mean to say that Europe has... Superior values, (laughs) and we need to um, bless the rest of the world with our superior values. But there's a set of values that is enshrined in EU law. Solidarity, for example, plays uh, an important role, as you know, in primary and in secondary law. Justice, um, dignity. So there are a set of values that have been recognized in Europe as particularly important and that we believe... Can play a role in a particular way in strategic crisis management, so this is not to say that uh, Europe is in any way superior or smarter than, than any other continent uh, yeah yeah
0: yeah, that makes sense absolutely. but then I wonder if you were being perhaps a bit unnecessarily modest early on when you were giving an account of what ethics advice can actually do because you emphasized the role of ethics advisors in so, firstly, illuminating the values that are embedded in how policy questions are framed and how they're answered. And then, secondly, elucidating a bit about what certain values like solidarity mean and don't mean. So that you can say to the policymaker, you know, if you want to do X and Y, then be aware these are the values that you're emphasizing. But if you want to do A and B instead, then it's these other values. And, that, you know, I just think you should know, which is fine. But then, from what you've just said, That's maybe also a bit conservative because it now seems like you can also add, oh, and by the way, you should probably choose X and not uh, A. (laughs) Because given the European approach that we've all signed up to, and indeed given European law, which governs your decisions, you're supposed to emphasize these values like solidarity and justice rather than these others. So not only can you analyze which options imply which values, but you can also recommend which options to choose based on the values that are already defined in our laws.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, yes. Except except that I don't think we can ever say in the abstract that value A and B should be prioritized because values become salient in specific contexts and, and in, with regard to specific practices. So, uh, it doesn't make any sense to say that um, solidarity is more important than justice or more important than a privacy, for example. First of all, the, the, those values are incommensurable. Um, there's no hierarchy between them. Um, one could say that in some contexts they require each other. Um, you can only talk about what values are most helpful for a specific problem when, when you know what the problem is. What values become salient, for example, when we're facing an deprivation, then values having to do with exclusion become very salient, but it might also touch upon some people's rights to decide what happens on their property. So um, it doesn't really make sense in the abstract to talk about the hierarchy of values. And in that sense, maybe the notion of European values is really not so helpful in the sense that potentially all values could be salient and helpful in a specific situation. I think what we try to do is to acknowledge that particular values because they are salient in a lot of ways and in a lot of contexts and were some of the guiding principles almost for the creation of European institutions, that they are already so inscribed in our institutions that sometimes we don't even see anymore how they are at work. I mean, solidarity is actually one of them when it comes to institutions. We have a lot of solidaristic institutions that we might not even recognize as such because we're so used to it. We also, um, autonomy is another one. In many places in Europe, if not most, respect for individual autonomy is so obvious to people that we don't really, we recognize when it's not there, which actually applies to lots of uh, values. We recognize them, we see them when they're being infringed when they're not, not, not respected we're in a context where they should be respected, then we feel them. When they are tacitly at work, we don't, we don't see them.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess because your client for this advice is a European institution, so the European Commission, maybe it makes sense to emphasize those values that are deeply embedded in that level of government as opposed to others, because the EU, exactly. in a sense, is all about solidarity. You know,
1: yeah, yeah. Although, although I would also say that European institutions are all about justice and they are all about individual mm-hmm. okay. freedom. So, okay, um, I wouldn't. Again, I think the notion, this terrible word of incommensurability is is an important one here. We can't decide whether Beethoven or Mozart is better. You can't compare their importance. And I would say the same is true for most values that they are really. We, we can't compare their value or their importance. They they are, they, they only mean something in a specific, concrete situation and context.
0: Mm. Well, I mean, that's an interesting uh, debate, but I feel like we should probably back off from that particular philosophical rabbit hole, as interesting as it is. Um, something else I wanted to ask you. I remember years ago uh, making a presentation to a bunch of doctors about... Ethics, medical ethics. And I remember vividly a young doctor saying to me, look, this stuff is all very well and I can see the point of it in theory and I know we studied in medical school and so on. But when we're actually facing a tough decision in like a clinical context, we already have a whole load of medical facts and a whole load of rules and regulations and the patient's expectations and the family's expectations and all this stuff and time pressure. The last thing I need is some ethicist looking over my shoulder telling me also to think about fundamental values. I wonder whether you have a similar problem here but on a a kind of even bigger scale because in a time of crisis when a decision maker is under pressure they need to act fast and they already have plenty on their plate. How do you persuade them they need to listen to you as well?
1: Um, I I would agree that you wouldn't want somebody coming along saying, Have you thought about um, but It's not that somebody needs to come and bring the values to the table. They're already in there. So for a very experienced doctor, they might have um, experience also with what types of solutions are the best in the sense that they bring about the most good in a situation to everyone involved. They might not be able to articulate this, but this is about values, right? So, I mean, nobody would say, okay, we solved the problem by just cutting off the other limb or something. The the very fact that this is an absurd idea means it already includes a value judgment. So sometimes when people say, it doesn't help me, it could mean that the person is very ignorant, but it could also mean that the person is very experienced making decisions that that bring about and respect values in a way that, that the outcome is good. You don't always, I'm the last person to say that you always need an ethics advisor who stands next to you and looks over the shoulder and translates things that you do into jargon. Not at all. But in in situations where there's genuine uncertainty, unprecedented situations, situations where there are different ways of even posing a problem, I think there it can be very helpful to either think about the value dimension yourself as a policymaker or decision maker or have somebody who helps you to think through it in a structured manner. But I'm the last person to say that this is always needed. It's definitely needed in a crisis because if you don't think about values at all, it will come back to bite you.
0: Okay, great. Thank you for the reassurance. I had one more question, something that you mentioned a little bit in your statement and which you've actually touched on uh, already today, but not really explored. And it's this, that we sometimes hear people Pointing out that public deliberation and democratic accountability go out of the window somewhat when a crisis hits. You know, politicians are under pressure, they have to get stuff done urgently. Um, Do you have any comments about how we should handle this?
1: I don't think it would be good to assume that you need a fully fledged public consultation or deliberation or a citizen panel in such a situation. But thinking through whose interests are affected by your decision, in what way, um, who benefits, who bears the cost in a structured way, goes a long way. And there's always time for that. And as as long as it's not a matter of a few seconds, there's always time to think about whose rights and interests are affected. Something that sometimes gets forgotten is that this doesn't apply only to solutions. It applies already to the point when I'm I'm formulating a question for example if i frame vaccination hesitancy as an information deficit problem i will uh, throw more information on people if i frame it as a maybe sign of protest as an articulation of political stance then my solution might be a very different one and if i need getting people to get vaccinated then this is quite key
0: yes well understood so before we finish, I want to say uh, many thanks indeed. You've been a versatile conversation partner. Thank you for not only filling us in on the statement on crisis management, but but going above and beyond on all kinds of things. And I mean, you've humored me and allowed me to talk philosophy on the podcast for the first time in a while. So I really appreciate it. Um, in return, I also want to give you the opportunity to let us know, to let our listeners know What the European Group on Ethics has next on its agenda?
1: Um, So, the AGE believes that democracy in a digital age and the challenges that democracies are facing through digitization, but also through other recent developments, are really important and we would really like to look into that. Um, We haven't decided exactly on the form in which we will do that, but um, we will certainly say something about democracy in a digital age in the in the nearish future
0: excellent something to look forward to in the nearish future professor barbara preinsack thank you
1: thank you so much toby it was a pleasure
0: the science for policy podcast is created by sapaya it's produced by me toby wardman with additional research and support from agnieszka Pietruczuk. CEPPEA is a consortium of Europe's academy networks representing more than 100 academies, young academies and learned societies from more than 40 countries across Europe. We're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism and, as such, we're funded by the European Union. Having said that, the opinions you hear on this podcast are those of the guests and sometimes mine, but certainly not the views of the European Commission. This music is composed by Carlo Alfredo Piatti and performed by Elisaveta Sushchenko. And this last bit is particularly good.